I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before we get this next history hack out and going, just reminded to say that we are on Patreon. If you head to patreon.com forward slash history hack, you can see all the amazing tiers that start from just three pounds a month. But we know that supporting a pod that you might not listen to all of the episodes on, for shame, you may want to just tip us for an episode. So we have signed up with Ko-Fi. So if you go to ko-fi.com forward slash history hack, you can tip us for an episode that you've listened to and quite liked. So whichever way you're able to support us, whether that's just sharing the pod with your friends or being able to support us financially, we cannot thank you enough. So without further ado... Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. This there's a very familiar face in the room today, other than Matt's, that is. And we're discussing his new book, which I'm going to take, well, History Hack is going to take credit for, because I think, I think he had the idea for it when we were doing Bobfest last year. Possibly. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. It was, we were talking to John Orloff. It's true, it's Jane Collins. Hello, yeah, and, and he was talking about Band of Brothers. And I, suddenly think, and I remember thinking in the middle of the conversation, Cracky, she, yeah, you know, there's a, there's a thought there. Because Band of Brothers, when it first came out in 1992, was, was you know, it was game-changing. It was like one of those sort of iconic books like Face of Battle by John Keegan that really do change the landscape of how you write history. And actually, and I, I, I went back to it and had a, had a read of it. And it's just not quite as good as I remembered. I don't know. I don't know whether that's because sort of my standards have risen or something. I don't know. It's actually full of inaccuracies as well and errors. It didn't really matter though. It was it was such an important book, I think, and it got me thinking. And then I was sort of, you know I was really inspired by talking to John Aldoff. It was so interesting about the process of structuring a drama. And then I was thinking, well, actually, what would be good is to write a book a bit more like the Band of Brothers TV series rather than the original book. And so that was the seed of it, really, and it came from that. But 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 yeah, no. So I owe you one. <laughs> Matt's here today. Matt, you've read it. You're really impressed with the unit that James picked, aren't you? Oh, they're, they're quite something. You know, interestingly, on that Band of Brothers thing, it was 20 years ago today it premiered in the States. Yeah. So this is going out on publication day, but we're recording this a bit early. But yeah, so that's, that's an interesting time. But yes, the, the unit that you've picked, James, the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry, you mentioned them in your Normandy 44 book, one of the units you followed. But now boy, do you follow them and what a war they had. But just for the listeners, who who were they? Because they had a fascinating war, didn't they? It started on horseback. Yeah, they're the most they're extraordinary. I mean, uh, I should also just tell you what, why I've become a bit obsessed with Sherwood Rangers. Because yes. the first time I ever went to Normandy was, was 2004 for the, I guess it's the 60th anniversary. 
And I was with a group of friends, several of whom I knew very well, and, and one or two of them I didn't know at all. And one of the ones I didn't know was a chap called David Christofferson. We were on Gold Beach and we were standing by this sort of, you know, bashed about bunker, sort of casement, Hamel village on, on overlooking Gold Beach. And David said, oh, my dad came ashore here. And, and he said it was, it was this, this particular casement was, was a real pain for, for them and really caused an awful lot of trouble until someone rather marvellous from the Essex Yeomanry came along and, and, and knocked it out. And there was this little chap sat next to him and he went, that was me. And uh, anyway... <laughs> Good Lord, was it really? Anyway, we were then staying in a place called Audroy, which was south of Bayeux, and I guess probably, you know, 15 miles or so inland from Gold Beach. And we were staying there, and, and David had his father's diaries and, and his journal and stuff. And he was like, I think my dad was somewhere around here. So I thought, well, let's have a look. We looked, and then we looked at the map and stuff, and we realised that we were literally walking distance from where this this key point called point 103 which is where the Sherwood Rangers got got stuck in the, in the immediate days after after D-Day and then sort of basically there pretty much till the end of June um, in this massive ding-dong with the Panzerlehr and the and the 12th SS Hitler Jugend divisions which were probably two of the best divisions that the Wehrmacht had which is one of the reasons why they didn't get much ground anyway we he and I wandered off and we left the rest of the guys and we wandered off to, our own and, and went up to point 103 and found this kind of sunken lane lined with a kind of you know bockage type type raised ground and beech trees and what have you and you could half close your eyes you could absolutely picture the tanks lined up behind this tree line and you know vehicles and things you could just see it all and it was it was magical this this sort of link to the past through david's father's words and, and standing there at this exact spot you know 60 years later it, it was amazing and anyway we became firm friends and you know he told me that his father had kept his diaries pretty much throughout the whole war and had survived the whole thing and ended up commanding the show at rangers but had also been at alamein at the time i was working on a book about the north africa campaign so i said well you know can i use your dad's diaries and maybe I'd write about him in my north africa book which i subsequently did and then i did these books on the war in the west and stuff and i included stanley christopherson in them and then some years ago i edited his ended up editing his diaries and david and i went around interviewing some of the veterans and, and what have you and so that's where the kind of whole link to the sherwood rangers came from and various other sherwood rangers families sent me stuff like letters and diaries and, and what have you and so then when we had that conversation that's where the kind of you know i suddenly thought well actually if there's one unit that i could do this with it would be, you know, in this age where most of the veterans are no longer with us. It's the Sherwood Rangers. And what a remarkable story they have, because, you know, they head, they, they head off to war. You know, pretty shit, if I'm completely honest. I mean, excuse my French. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, they're, they're on horseback. And, you know, there's photographs of them at, at the kind of annual summer camp at the kind of Earl of Yarborough you know, in their Sam Browns and lots of leather on their horses with kind of sort of field caps and... You know, they look like something out of the Anglo-Burr War rather than than the Second World War. And they just look completely behind the times. And yet, by May 1945, they've become the single unit in the British Army with more battle honours than any other. And you kind of think, well, how can that be? How did that transition come about? And the more you look into it, the more you realise that in a way they're kind of they're like a, a sort of light motif for the experience of the British Army in the Second World War. You know, they start off a little bit behind the game, but end up mm. being pretty damn good actually and it suddenly occurred to me that actually through the Sherwood Rangers you can tell the big picture through quite a small lens and I think that's sort yeah. of attractive and that, of course that's one of the attractions of Band of Brothers I think so it's been you know it's been 
I feel very kind of wedded to this regiment, I have to say. Yeah, it's great. uh, Without blowing smoke up your arse, one thing you do very well is big sweeping history on campaign stuff. How did you have to change your approach to do to use this lens? Well, in, in some ways, I mean, one of the things I've always done, whether it's a big sweeping campaign or a kind of big history like like War in the West, is I always try to have a quite a defined cast list. I mean, you know, different historians and different and, and writers approach the, the narrative and the te- retelling of the Second World War in different ways. And, you know, a lot of historians prefer to explain the human experience of war by not having people that you particularly get to know, but just having lots and lots of names of people with... You know, so that you might have one sentence about what it was like being in a foxhole. You might have another line from somebody else about what it was like being in Hamburg during the bombing or, you know, whatever. You get lots and lots of names, but you don't ever get to know them. Whereas I've always felt I've always liked the idea of having quite a defined cast list in my books where you, the reader, get to know that person. Whether you like them or don't like them, you're able to then empathise with them and the decisions they make and the kind of situations in which they find themselves. I guess whether it's the First World War or the Second World War or any conflict, you know, what draws us in is the, the immense human drama, isn't it? And it's it's this idea, particularly in the Second World War, I think, of of ordinary people suddenly caught up in extraordinary events which are beyond their control and how they cope with it. You know, what would you and I do if we were suddenly living through the Second World War? How would we cope with it? You know, we know how we cope with being in the middle of a pandemic, but how do we cope with being in a global conflict? You know, it's a very sort of different thing. So I think that's sort of, you know, where the interest comes. And so with all my books, I've had this quite defined cast list. And so to that extent, Brothers in Arms is exactly the same. It's a very defined cast list. Where it's different is it's not a big sweeping campaign history it's not told 360 degrees through the eyes of the germans or you know axis troops as well as the allied it it doesn't really do civilians as well as as military it it just tells it through the eyes of a handful of people who are part of the sherwood rangers variously sometimes all the way through from 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 d-day all the way to v V v-day but most of the time you know they come and go because they get wounded or killed or, or or whatever and it's that kind of sort of micro history What I really wanted to try and do was convey a sense of what it was like as close as it's possible without actually having been there and through the through the prism of writing a book to explain what it was like to be in a tank crew in northwest Europe between D-Day and the end of the war. And some of the privations that you have to go through, some of the issues that you face, the dilemmas you face, the hardships, the challenges and also explain why tanks were important, what their role was, why they were caught up in the middle of it, and and why they were frankly so completely lethal to be a part of. I think the interesting thing is is that the Britain and America are fighting quite efficient wars in the big scheme of things. You know, most people, I think, assume that being in, in the Allied armies in Northwest Europe in 1944 to 1945 was considerably safer than it was, for example, being in the Red Army or being in the mm-hmm. German Army. And actual fact, you know, you need to slightly deconstruct that thought because the way British and American and Canadian and Allied armies are structured at that time is that actually the spear point is, is really small and, and the shaft of that spear is incredibly long. So in the British Second Army... 43% are service troops, for example, only 14% are infantry and only 8% are tanks. But if, but as a proportion of that 14% or that 8%, the casualties are absolutely horrific amongst the infantry and the armour, whereas obviously they're not at all horrific if you're in the service corps. So overall, the casualties don't look 
perhaps as bad as they do in the Red Army or the or the German Army. But if you're in the frontline troops, they're absolutely catastrophic. And the bottom line is, is if you're in an armoured British armoured unit, or indeed American one or Canadian for that matter, or Polish in Northwest Europe, your chances of getting through unscathed statistically are zero. Now, whether you get through unscathed lightly or very badly or you're killed or incinerated is frankly largely a matter of chance. But at some point, your tank will be hit. Of that, there is absolutely no doubt. Everyone had their tank hit at some point. And that's really scary. You make it come across in the book really well. It's very claustrophobic. When the Sherwood Rangers are in action, it's there are times when you start feeling a little bit closed up with them because they don't really know what's going on outside of the little slit in the periscope. And to a degree, you keep us in that because it's, you don't know what's going to happen as a reader. And it's, it's really claustrophobic and quite scary. You've got a couple of chapters called Luck and Revolving Doors. And that's, that sums up the experience of those troopers from, from reading it. Cause it's, it's horrifyingly, <sighs> I don't want to keep saying chance, but it is, isn't it? It's just, you, yeah. it, it, it's going to happen. You just don't know when. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it absolutely is. And I think, you know, when you go out there as a sort of 19-year-old or 20-year-old young troop commander, you know, so you're in charge of four tanks, you know, you kind of feel you're very well trained, which, frankly, you are in the big scheme of things, but you've also got to unlearn quite a lot of stuff that you've been learned, taught at Sandhurst or what have you, or in Bovington and get with the kind of reality and whatever kind of false bravado you might have gone out with and confidence you might have gone out with if you survive those first few weeks that confidence is going to be chipped away at because as you say Matt you know you realize very quickly that that (laughs) you know you you are going to be hit at some point you are it just is totally inevitable and there's nothing you can do about it what you can do is you can you, you can learn and wise up and try and limit the chances and you and you can try and make it as likely as you possibly can that that when you are hit it's you know of a lesser degree than a heavy degree but you know the number of desert veterans and pre-war veterans which come and go and you know eventually one after the other get killed or very very badly wounded and, and leave the regiment forever is just it's just relentless and as is the relentlessness of the action I mean, I'm glad you said you, you thought it was claustrophobic. I mean, one of the other things I was trying to do with the writing style was, was you know, when it was more laid back, kind of out of the line writing, be a bit more sort of languid in the in, in the prose. And then when it's in action, try and make it really truncated and, and you know, jarring and jagged and and kind of boom, 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 boom. When things are happening so fast, you want your the words to reflect that, to kind of have that that sort of slightly staccato feeling, to kind of sort of, sort of slightly ape the ape the action i don't know whether it worked or not but that was certainly the intention it does come across because there's times where you're like well hang on a second this is a big operation what's going on to the right or the left of them but very quickly you just know that's not the point you're staying with you know you're staying with david render and his, his tank and him basically swearing quite a bit and not knowing what's going on too far abroad is is the experience of of, of those men because they've just got to get through you know the next five minutes let alone right the next day Right. I mean, I remember going into the Reichswald and coming across this grave of Lieutenant Rees, you know, who, who had come out and his first action was Operation Veritable, beginning of, of February. And, you know, they moved into Cleve and he was probably killed age 19. And the time I was writing it, my son was 19. 
you know, wonderful Vonette is and grown up where he is, the idea that he could be commanding a troop in battle is just, you know, in a Sherman tank, it's just, you think, blimey. And I, and I think it's really clear that you can see from, from the sort of after action account by a chap called Lieutenant Anderson, who, how he survives, I just do not know, but get, his tank gets hit and the driver gets killed and he has to kind of reverse his tank out of his really difficult situation just near Nijmegen. And he writes this absolutely breathless report. And, and then the letters of this guy called Harry Heenan, who's, who's only just turned 21 when he's killed. They're sort of boy men, you know, they are, they are grown-ups, you know, they are 20 or 19 or 21 or whatever. And, and so they can do adult things and they can drink whiskey and smoke and, you know, go into battle and command troops in battle. But their letters betray their youth. You know, you, you can see that they're these guys on the cusp, you know, where they're leaving their teenage selves behind and embracing adulthood, but they haven't quite got there 100% yet. You know, and I put my son today in that absolutely that category. You know, that wonderful, I mean, we've all been that that stage where you're students and, you, you know, suddenly you're an adult for the first time, you can do adult things and you, you have no responsibility to anyone other than yourself. And mm-hmm. you're trying to get that kind of, you're becoming more independent, but by the same token, you still like childish things and you haven't quite let go and, and you still haven't quite left home. The, you haven't quite 100% left home and all the rest of it. And you know, that's what these guys are like. And it's just a reminder how flipping cold they are, you know, how young they are. It's horrendous absolutely horrendous and the responsibility on the shoulders of these guys is just it's just mind-blowing i mean if there's one major takeaway that i've really got above all i suppose is is the relentlessness of the combat but also the responsibility on the shoulders of of these young troop commanders and squadron commanders so you know in in the squadron commanders you've got your kind of four or five troops you know so possibly uh, you know just under 100 men and you know 50 odd tanks or whatever um, 20 odd tanks but you know, as a squadron commander, you've got to be listening to your tank intercom. So you're listening to your, the four men in your in your tank. You're listening on the B net to what is going on and communicating on the B net, which is your kind of squadron radio net. You've also got to listen on the A net, which is your link from squadron to regiment, JH, you know, RHQ and the infantry you're supposed to be supporting. So you've got to have your ears computing three things. You've got to have your head and shoulders above the, the turret which is the most vulnerable point as well, because, of course, that's where you're most likely to be seen. But that's the reason why you're there, so that you can see, because at the moment you close down the hatches, you're looking out of periscopes. So you, just, you can just see diddly squat. It's, I mean, it's worse than a letterbox. I mean, it really is, you, you just, you need 360 degrees of, of vision, and you don't get that from a periscope. So you have to have your head and shoulders above the, the parapet, which, of course, makes you incredibly vulnerable. And at the same time, you've got to be looking out all the time for any enemy movement, any potential danger. And every single decision you make is potentially fatal. Uh, and the lives of not only yourself, but also all your men and people in your charge and the infantry that you're working with might be at stake. That's a huge responsibility. And it's just so exhausting physically because most of the time you're standing up in your tank. And in the summer months, you know, you might be, you know, up at 3.30 and not going to bed till 1.00. So you're getting three hours, maybe four hours, absolutely tops every single night and usually less than that. And it's just not enough. You know, and after six days of combat, you're absolutely shot physically, mentally. You're absolutely exhausted. John Semkin, who's the A squadron commander in, in show and rangers, he's 23. I mean, it's just, it's you know, and at the same time, he's also having to analyse what they've done and learn very quickly and help develop new tactics because the tactics of, North Africa and Tunisia and the Western Desert don't apply in Normandy. 
And no one's trained for this because there isn't the space in Britain to train for it. In the most important thing when you're training for D-Day, when you've got millions of men and millions of tons of supplies and the whole of England is just one massive great army camp, you simply can't do all arms, artillery, armour, infantry training and with engineers because you can't just keep moving everyone around the country. There literally is not the training space to do it. And what have you got to do? You've got to learn about how you're going to get in and out of landing craft because landing successfully, making Operation Overlord, the, the actual invasion, successful is the most important thing. Once you've landed okay and built up enough supplies, then the battle will eventually be won. So that's a priority and understandably so. But it does mean that when you suddenly get into, into Normandy, you're having to learn on the hoof. And that is also the responsibility of the of the kind of regimental commanders, but also the squadron leaders and the troop commanders as well. So you, all this is going into the mix. And I just think that is just a phenomenal amount on a young man's shoulders. Mm. You've got, obviously you've got a great understanding from the letters and diaries and things. But how many of them did you actually get to meet? Well, John Semkin, who I mentioned, who was 23 when he was commanding A Squadron. David Render, I got to interview at great length. Several of other, other of the troopers I got to meet. I think about, about five or six. And then Stan Perry, who's the only one who's still alive, but he's just the most wonderful person. Sort of lovely and wry and, and got a great chuckle and has enjoyed his life. But, but at the same time, you know, carries the burdens of, of what he went through as well. I spoke to his daughter the other day and he said, well, you know, dad's a bit bit down today. I said, oh, why is that? And she said, well, you know, it's the anniversary of Berju and he always wonders whether he could have done things differently. And, you know, some of those guys might have lived, you know. Wow. I mean, you know, and I mean, I do remember him telling, you know, I remember Stan saying to me that the scars come out are threefold. You know, the first one is, did I make the right decision? Could I have saved more lives had I turned left into a wood rather than right or moved up that road a bit more cautiously or whatever it might be and then the other scars are the guilt you feel at 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 having killed other people Mm. and then the third scar is the physical ones you know bits of metal still rattling around on your back or arm or whatever that you know the physical wounds that you have that you suffered and i just thought gosh you know what 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 an amazing thing of course you know how would you ever get over that of course you're going to think about it and I think the other thing about it is, you know, I was talking to someone the other day about, you know, how many, I mean, how many prisoners were murdered by Allied troops, you know, how many Italians and French girls and Germans were raped by Allied troops and all the rest of it, you know, the, the idea that all the Allies were innocent and noble and, and you know, on, on this sort of moral crusade and all the rest of it is clearly nonsense. But I do think there is this, in the, in the Sherwood Rangers, uh, there, is, there is great humanity. And of course, that comes from the top every unit it's really the person who's the, the, the people at the very top whether it be the commanding officer or the immediate people around you know that's that's how it seeps down doesn't it that's that's it's the same with you know a, a sporting side the the tone of the of your cricket 11 or your football team or rugby team comes from the captain and from the management the you know the coach and everything <laughs> laughing my head off at the thought of chelsea under scolari when all the players were fat and couldn't be bothered sums up that quote but but you know what I mean I mean that's where it comes down and I think you know in in Stanley Christopherson you've got this guy who's incredibly humane you read his diary in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi I'm Marcus Smith host of the Constant Wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids 
Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. And they've just been through some ghastly slaughter. You know, Cleave has been completely destroyed. Gok has been completely destroyed. You know, they're finally going, and, and then he notes, but I saw my first snowdrop of the year. You know, mm-hmm. in the corner. And, you know, the fact that you just think, oh, what an amazing man. And the fact that Christmas 1944, the Sherwood Ranger in a place called Shinin, which is just in the side of the Dutch border with Germany and you know they're all starving it's freezing cold the snow on the grind it's, it's you know it's a completely miserable experience these guys have just suffered four years of occupation and so Stanley arranges for them to lay on a little show for, for the kids and they get one of the guys one of the officers dresses up as Father Christmas another one who's very good at acrobatics dresses up as his kind of his elf and they get a sleigh they fashion together a sleigh and have it towed by one of the tanks rather than reindeer and all the men have handed in their chocolate rations and sweet rations and they put a tree in the middle of the town and they hand out presents to all the kids of the town. And you think, God, you know, what an amazing thing to have done. You know, I mean, how, how brilliant is that to have done that? You know, they've got so many other things to think about. Yeah, it's just, you know, I, I, I'm just lost in, in awe and admiration for what they went through and what they did. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Yeah, you've jumped the gun on him because I know Matt adores him. Because Matt put in his notes the CEO you would dream of having. Yeah, the CEO you dream of having, and and I think one of the reasons he keeps them going is is again through his own example, which where he where he's always laughing, he's always joking, he's always bringing in a, a, a lightness. He has this wonderful sense of the ridiculous. You know, he's terribly amused by other people's eccentricities and amusing things he's seen. And he gets terribly tickled by that. And I suppose when you're surrounded by all this complete madness and mayhem and and, and horror, frankly, you know, having a sense of humour keeps you going. And again, I just think that filters down through all the men. It set, it sets a tone, which it, I think is incredibly important and which, which does set them apart from, from some other, other units. When you're, when you're commanded by a martinet, it's a very different atmosphere. Has your viewpoint changed? You've spent a lot of time with with Stanley Christopherson, with with David his son in his diaries, but having put him in with his men for the amount of time it's taken you to do Brothers in Arms, has your viewpoint changed on him any? Yeah, just uh, only only in, in so much that my admiration has has increased. I think. I mean, one of the things that I did with with David last last aut- autumn when I was just about to stop writing it was we were it was a sort of COVID window. And so we went to Germany and we did all the German bits that the, the Sherwood Rangers did. We completely followed the leg of where they were and walked across the battlefields and, and followed the route. And we ended up where 
they ended up at the end of the war when on the evening of the 4th of May, Stanley Christopherson was handed a note badly typed out, badly written down in pencil saying tomorrow morning as of eight o'clock, you know, the war is over in this part of 21st Army Group's area, you know, 0800, 5th of May, 1945. And it was the most beautiful evening, late October evening. Uh, and the, the light was golden. There were still leaves on the trees. And, you know, you saw these magnificent oaks around this farmhouse and, David said, you know, my father, as I did, I pretty much guessed that this was the house he'd have taken. And it looked like something from Suffolk or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a lovely kind of brick farmhouse, a lovely sort of terracotta roof and, and everything. And you absolutely could half close your eyes and, and smell the tobacco and, and the cigarette and pipe smoke and picture the kind of vehicles and jeeps and half tracks and Sherman tanks and the courtyard, you know, in the farmyard and was an incredibly evocative moment and and you just couldn't help but but be really struck by this incredible journey they'd gone through and i think you know the danger we have is that we're so seduced by the movies and and by tv series and stuff that you tend to kind of think that the war is all about d-day and normandy and bastogne or whatever and you forget that there is this huge part of the war those 11 months for every single month of those last 11 months of the war in Europe were really tough and really brutal and it was just so instructive to follow on that journey from you know from which from the Sherwood Rangers point of view was really from you know meant that we were following them from sort of November 44 through to May 1945 and you you really got a, a feel for the relentlessness of what they'd gone through and all these different sites and these different battles they'd fought across and yeah, so it's one of it's one of awe really that they they were still standing at the end of it. Those who were still standing, they hadn't completely lost their marbles, and, and that someone like Stanley has kept the whole show on the road. You know, when so many other peoples were falling by the wayside, so many other people had. I mean, you can completely see, for example, that David Render by the end of the war has absolutely lost it. You know, he really has and shouldn't have been there. Uh, and of course, John Semkin admits himself. You know, by by November, the end of November, nineteen forty four, he's done. He's through. He he's shot you know and has to go home so the fact that stanley christopherson is still there still laughing still making the gags you know still kind of leading them all still showing such incredible leadership both morally and physically i I think is is absolutely remarkable it's another remarkable individual in the unit as well possibly as remarkable as stanley and that's leslie skinner the the regimental chaplain what can you tell us about him well, he's a, he is a remarkable man. And I think, you know, people like him and the doctor, Hilda Young, um, Charles Young uh, and Stanley, you know, the, and Stephen Mitchell, these guys who are at the top of the regiment. These are the guys who are, are, are sort of burning the right moral torch for the regiment and kind of setting the bar. And Leslie Skinner is a Methodist priest. He's a Yorkshireman. He shouldn't be out there. He's got really severe hearing problems, which should have kind of medically grounded him and prevented him from seeing overseas service but he pushes ahead anyway and what a great man because he has this not only is he a sounding board for so many people you know he's always there for someone to talk to if they want to talk to him spiritually whether it be christianity uh christian thoughts or just as a basically a psychiatrist as a shrink or just someone to talk to he's always there for the guys but the other thing he does is all the dead he accounts for whether they be completely incinerated or a tank or whether they be blown to smithereens he finds them he buries them, he marks their grave, he writes to their family, 
And there is this heartbreaking quote, he says, where sometimes families just wanted to write and write and write. And the most heartbreaking thing was having to break that cycle of endless writing to people, you know, you had to let go. But that was incredibly hard. And what an amazing man. I mean, the amount of times in his diary he's being sick. He's just unbelievable. He's being sick through disgust at what he's having to do, which is bury people that have been burnt to a cinder or been blown to smithereens body parts and all the rest of it and he always did it and he would never let any of the men do it themselves because he felt it was absolutely important that they didn't see what he saw that that was his job as padre to take shoulder that that burden that responsibility and he's an absolute hero i mean just a remarkable man and again one of the reasons why i think that you know the story of the show with rangers works because you do have his testimony you do have that testimony of, of people like john semkin and Stanley Christopherson, I think, which, which gives you this very clear picture of, of what they're all going through. I was just blown away by his fortitude. Yeah. Make, making that decision on, on D-Day, wasn't it? And how the horrible experiences he had on D plus one, D plus two, I think it was getting hurt and heading back. You'd think, okay, well, may, maybe I won't do that anymore. And yet there he is right up till af- after the war, still trying to find them all. It, it's incredible. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Amazing. I was also, I, I, I became very fond of Bill Wharton. Who, who, I just had his letters and he died some years ago. He, his letters, his personality just comes through so clearly, so vividly that you feel you know these guys. I mean, you know, you feel like you know exactly who Leslie Skinner was. You, you feel you know exactly who Bill Wharton was. You know, they are really very very real people even though they're long dead and of course you never actually knew them what you the person you knew was their wartime self so you only knew a fraction of their lives rather than the whole it does make you very very emotionally invested in them because you do feel you know them you feel like you're writing about friends and it's a very sort of weird thing because of course they're all long gone but you do know them and there's no you 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 know you you can't help but feel emotionally invested and i you know i hope that that helps the writing and helps the kind of I've got so attached to some of my Etonians doing that book as well it's like you do they're like they're like your little buddies by the time you finish it's really sad and pathetic but they are like your little buddies by the time you get to the end of it because you've just like basically lived this whole miserable experience with them and you you know how horribly it ends for some of them and absolutely but but how do you get to know someone really well you get to know them by by hearing their inner thoughts don't you Mm. you know someone becomes a really good mate because over the years, you've sat in a pub with them or you've been for walks with them or whatever and they've poured their heart out to you and you've laughed together and you've, you know, you've, you've commiserated about things. So when you hear someone's story, very personal story, and you, and you get to learn their characteristics and, what, what, and their likes and dislikes and what motivates them and what doesn't, of course you get to know them. And of course, again, you're going to like some people more than others. Bill Walton, who I just mentioned, you know, he's just he's just such a likable character. He's obviously a really, really good bloke. I would I've done anything to have met him and, and talked to him properly, you know. But I hope that, you know, I hope that's that sense of what they were like, that their characters and their distinct characters come through in the book. I mean, that's that was certainly what I was aiming to aiming to aiming to do, to try and put flesh back on the bones, so to speak. It certainly does, as as does the many, many names of people that aren't around long enough to, to warrant more than a paragraph. Yeah. It, it gets a bit, you know, not a criticism, but it does get a bit hard to remember who the new boys in each of the troops are 
and then it's Leslie Skinner trying to go find them a few pages later. It's quite harrowing. I was near the end of the book. I mean, I you know I don't want to spoil alert, but there's and I won't mention his name, but there's a there's one character who gets killed, and his best friend in the regiment. He's just totally, totally grief stricken by this, and writes this letter to this guy's parents or mother. And in it, he just says, because his own parents are in the Far East somewhere, prisoners of Japanese, hasn't seen them for years. He says, you know, I loved this. I, I, I loved him more than any other person in the, uh, alive. And it's just utterly heartbreaking. I mean, you know, I remember feeling really quite heartbroken by, by this and, and wobbly bottom-lipped about the whole experience. So, you know, Yeah. You've mentioned 1945 and the fact that we think about D-Day and we kind of, we ignore what comes after it until we get to the end. So is it the forgotten year of history, the Second World War? So in Brothers in Arms, you bring the whole thing back vividly to the front. Why do you think we ignore those last five months? I, I think it's because there aren't any movies about it, really. Yeah. I, I think, Not yeah, in pop culture I mean, like the rest of yeah, it. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, if you really think about the Second World War, what what, what are the... What are the episodes that we all know? I mean, this country, of course, is Battle of Britain because we've got Spitfires flying over England, so we can still see them. There's a Battle of Britain movie, you know, every five years, someone makes another documentary about it. So, you know, you're constantly reminded about it, aren't you? And it's the same with, you know, D-Day. We've got Battle of Brothers. We've got Saving Private Ryan. We've got The Longest Day. You know, Market Guard, you've got Bridge Too Far. You've got Battle of the Bulge, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, so, so those big moments that are featuring movies and stuff that still is what everyone focuses on. And of course, the other beauty about Normandy is that you can just get on the ferry and go to all the beaches and see them, you know, and every five years, you know, the BBC and all the news channels make a massive fuss about it. Whereas, you know, the last, that last winter of the, of the war, you know, it's dark and miserable and wet and snowy and all the rest of it and cold, which is a bit miserable. It's not summer. And secondly, you know, no one's made a film about it. So I, I think that's why, but I can absolutely promise you it's as chock full of drama and excitement and tragedy and awfulness and amazing things happening and incredible heroism as, as Normandy or, frankly, any part of the Second World War. You know, it's, a, it's an incredible episode. Yeah, you just have to mention Plunder Varsity, which yeah, yeah. is huge. And, of course, you've got Churchill sneaking across the Rhine when nobody's looking. Yeah, well. yeah, exactly. Well, you know, and it's precisely why that's what I'm doing next. I'm going to be doing everything after Market Garden, you know, the Arnhem operation through to the end of the war. So that's the next book. Can't wait. I mean, it's sort of a bit grim, but but morbidly fascinating. Yeah, I, I threw that question in because that's been the one I've been meaning to ask you. Because so I've, I've asked Peter the same because his 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 new book is is covering the same sort of ground. Because for me, I as a typhoon, that there you go. If you're playing history hack bingo you know the, the new sat bay strike on the 3rd of may sinking of the cap arcona was that that's 36 hours before the surrender mm. yeah it's and it's yes it's a terrible mistake but it's 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 one of those things that we should we probably should spend a, a little bit more time thinking about L- let alone you know the the incredible slog that it was on the ground leading up to that point yeah yeah no, absolutely absolutely I've become a bit obsessed with it, to be perfectly honest. I think it was that kind of 
that 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 trip with David Christofferson going through Germany and following the Sherwood Rangers, you know, suddenly crossing the Reichswald, going going to the gross big heights, you know, going through Cleve and and then crossing the Rhine and at uh, Rees and following that route all the way up to Bremen and Hamburg. You know, it was just wow. I mean, again, the landscape just hasn't changed that much, really. You know, towns have grown, you know, been rebuilt or whatever, but the landscape itself is is really similar you know because i've got so many photographs of that now and you can absolutely see it in the black and white photographs you're looking at you can absolutely still see the landscape today you know in vivid color and so it felt very real again i suppose and and you know you just can't help but think oh, what a sort of ghastly terrible business it was and how difficult it must have been fighting through all this you know and, uh, and you know in a year or so ago i was on the Scheldt estuary as well so you know again what the canadians and british went through to try and clear the shell is is also you know that's an epic all of its own and again it's not particularly well known about but you know involves amphibious actions and you know swimming tanks and all sorts of stuff and dogged ss types you know mm. well, it's, uh, as 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 a canadian the shell sort of looms large in in our military history and it's but my grandmother had a cousin who died on the first well, actually, on the 11th of September, 1944, right when they reached the Scheldt, he was wow. he was killed on that. And trying to find out a bit more about him, but it's his, his tombstone has a beautiful um, um, message from his mother saying she still looks. I look out the door each day for you, or something like that. I have oh God! It's, that that's that's it's it's those Commonwealth War Grave headstones that you just read the messages from the family that. Yeah, well, I'd love you to send me his name and where, which cemetery is in because I'm going to be I'm going to be hot footing it out there for too long. I'm yeah. soon as I can. I'm going to be doing all that and crossing, going along the Shelton and stuff. And hopefully, this time not panicking about becoming stranded in Germany or booted out. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully not. Yeah, yeah. It was all a bit tense last time, but yes. crikey, worth it. That's for sure. We'll probably be get, getting in this time, won't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Long keys, passports, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Well, our last question was to ask you what you were doing next, but we've covered that. So, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. I was going to do Imphal next and, and Kahima, but but actually, I'm I'm so ingrained in in that 44 45 battle now that I think I can do that first. And before I head before I turn east again, I, I it, again, it's a sort of it's suddenly become a bit of an itch I need to scratch. I just I just need to kind of I, I feel very hungry to know a lot more about it. All the people waiting for that last war in the West Book are going to cry. Well, it's actually it's going to replace War in the West because I've done War in the West one or two, and I've actually written most of the stuff in War in the West three because War in the West three would begin with the Battle for Sicily. Where I've done that. Uh, it would include the War in Italy, where I've done the last year of that. It would obviously include D Day in Normandy, where I've done that. So it would be a bit weird, I think. So yeah. actually, I'm probably not going to do War in the West three now. What I'm going to do is I'll just do more campaigns within that two year period. So um, Westwall, which is what I'm going to call the next one, will be the sort of the bulk of what would have been War in the West 3. So hopefully it'll sit with those, those earlier books. As it's already happened, we can say that We Have Ways Fest has been a roaring success and planning for the next one is well underway. Just thinking that that's going to be, this is coming out after, <laughs> after next week, isn't it? But everything lined up, ready for ready for your second festival of the year. 
Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I love Chalk Valley History Festival in June. It's, it's really good. But to do a, a festival where it's just purely Second World War, from my point of view, is kind of what's not to like, frankly. Loads of hardware, lots of great speakers and panels and beer and, and interesting things to do. And, you know, one of the nice things about doing my own podcast is that, you know, you get, get to know a whole host of people who avidly listen and support it and, and call in with their questions and stuff. And it'd be really nice to... Really nice to speak to some of them and actually meet them in the flesh because, of course, a lot of, as you know, podcasts seem to be seem to have emerged from from the pandemic. But but now that we are also emerging out of the pandemic, getting back to something a bit like normal life, it's nice to be able to sort of see people properly in the flesh rather than just purely on Zoom. It's funny, though, isn't it, that like in normal years, because obviously we're organising the Great War Group Conference as well. And in normal years, you'd be all worried about the war side of it. And that would be the overriding thing. But in this, it's like literally it's 50-50 between the war stuff and when the drinking starts, because people just want to socialise. Like, but when do we go to the pub? That's what I'm really interested in. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. That's what they're doing there is at a brewery. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, exactly. That's why we're doing ours at brewery. <laughs> no, that's your one. We're, we're at Commonwealth Wargraves headquarters, but what we did was walk across the road to the nearest pub and go the doctors for the weekend, please. And they went okay. So yeah. So we've got we've got IP it, and we've got we've got Cromwell Hop, and we've got Tank Buster, and Panther Pills, awesome. and an Umpar band. Oh wow! <laughs> In later. <laughs> that's funny. We've got a Cockney meetup on our Friday night, actually. Yeah. And Tommy with a piano doing and song sheet. Yeah. Nice. Got to be done. Stuff you wouldn't usually get away with, a serious military history thing, but people, like I say, just want to socialise, don't they? They want to socialise, but also, you know, in, in the spirit of Stanley Christopherson, you've got to keep smiling. Well, that's the thing. It's like, it's, we, have that, we have people that have, have flounced from the Great War Group, so like, well, it's a bit too light-hearted for me. And it's like, well, it, it is an interest, and military history can be very serious, and it's a very sad subject, but you wouldn't hang around it and invest yourself in it if it was doom and misery every day of the week. You do right. want to enjoy what you spend your spare time on as well. There's a happy medium, I think. Yeah. But there's always lighthearted aspects of it, you know, there's, and that's, that's the bits that keep the grim stuff, keep the grim stuff going, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. James, thank you so much for joining us. The book is out now. Everybody should buy it. And we shall wait with Beta Beth for the, the next one. And we'll, We'll scratch War in the West 3 off the list. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me on. I mean, it's always lovely to talk to you guys. And, There's uh, a load of people with OCD literally have got to go away and process the fact that they've got to settle for numbers one and two now and they're not getting a number three. <laughs> <laughs> well, they sort of are, but it's just not labelled as such. I've still got people complaining about that picture of your books I put on Twitter that Sicily 43 and Normandy 44 are the wrong, the wrong way around because I have them in publishing order as opposed to year <laughs> order. It, they're not happy. I love the internet. Oh, <laughs> yes. That's oh, just very funny. They do look nice, though, how they've rejected all these coloured spines. Anyway, mm. that's by the by. But anyway, thank you very much for having me on. Thank you. If you're listening to this on the day we've released it, then it's happy publication day to James Holland for Brothers in Arms. You can get your copy, I would think, just about everywhere. But please do consider visiting our very own bookshop on bookshop.org. If you head to bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, 
you'll be able to find James's latest and also all the books that we've had on recently with their wonderful authors. So we hope you've enjoyed the episode. And until next time, thank you so much for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.